Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. I am Deacon Sabatino Carnazzo. I'm the director of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'd like to welcome you this evening. We have a lot of fun as Catholics here at the Institute. We have a mission of proclaiming Christ clearly in an orthodox manner and unashamed about the truths of the faith which we hold. We invite you, if you're a non-Catholic, to participate fully, to ask questions, and to enjoy the programs that we offer. But I will be very clear that they were always 100% Catholic. Our speaker this evening was ordained a priest in 1991 for the Diocese of Peoria, Illinois. He received his undergraduate degree in physics from the United States Naval Academy. He was elected a Rhodes Scholar in 1981, and he entered the Catholic Church while studying at Oxford. He has received multiple advanced degrees from Oxford and Mount St. Mary's Seminary and his licentiate and doctorate in Sacred Theology from the Pontifical Lateran University. Currently, Monsignor serves as Vice President for Catholic Identity and Missions and holds the Archbishop Flynn Chair of Christian Ethics at Mount St. Mary University in Emmitsburg, Maryland. He also serves as Executive Director of the Center for the Advancement of Catholic Higher Education and as Executive Secretary for the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars. He was named a Prelate of Honor in 2000 by Pope John Paul II. Monsignor Swetland hosts the weekly television show Catholicism on Campus on EWTN and co-hosts the show Go Ask Your Father on Relevant Radio, which ought to tell you why it's been over four years since I tried to get Monsignor Swetland to come and speak for the Institute, but I finally got him. So please join me in welcoming Monsignor Stuart Swetland. Thanks. Thank you, Monsignor. You're on. You're ready to go. Okay, great. And we'll adjust if necessary. All right. Let us uh, take a moment, placing ourselves in God's presence, let us ask the intercession of Our Lady here in the Easter season. Queen of heaven, rejoice, alleluia, for he whom you did merit to bear, alleluia, has risen as he said, alleluia. Pray for us to God, alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary, for the Lord has truly risen. Let us pray. O God, who gave joy to the world through the resurrection of thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, grant, we beseech thee, that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary, his mother, we may obtain the joys of everlasting life through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, St. Athanasius. Good to be with you today, probably an appropriate day to discussing such things, the uh, memorial of St. Athanasius, who was a great defender of Catholic orthodoxy. One of the things I have to say right away and someone has absconded with my talk, actually. Good deacon. Yes. I don't mind. I've got most of it down, but I would like to look at a couple of things there. Um, first thing I have to be honest about uh, is I'm a convert from Lutheranism. So a lot of what I'm going to discuss with you today is, while it's uh, steeped in theology, I hope, 
uh, is going to be, in fact, making more reference to uh, my own experience uh, as a child grow growing up Lutherans. And Lutherans are wonderful Christians. Uh, if you want to know, I was Missouri Senate Lutherans. And uh, when we found a little Lutheran community in northeast Pennsylvania where I grew up, uh, we were using a Presbyterian uh, church because we didn't have a church, didn't have enough people to build a church. And we got together, you know, the Presbyterians had their service first and we had it later in the day and, and we used sort of their downstairs little sanctuary, very small space. And I remember when we finally got a pastor who would pastor to our growing community of Lutherans in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. Uh, one of the first questions we had to decide as um, Catholics in the 60s had to decide certain things, what language were we going to say do services in? Because many in the community wanted to do it the way it was meant, the way God meant Lutheran services to be, in German. <laughs> and so we had our first congregational vote on the question of what language was going to be the main language for the parish. And uh, I remember the vote well because it was the first time in my life I got to vote on something. Uh, and I was just old enough to be considered uh, eligible to vote for such things. And English won 1615. Uh, which uh, was good, and my family had five votes, and we all voted for English. So, um, you know, we sort of swung the thing in that direction. So uh, I've always been on the radical edge, you know, throwing uh, Lutheran services into English. Came into the Catholic Church uh, when it had uh, made the transition from Latin to English. The little community I grew up in was a great Christian community. And as I look back now, thankful for what I received. I received the grace of baptism through the Lutheran community. I... Um, uh, had a pastor who was steeped, I didn't realize it at the time, but now having studied some theology, I look back and see that he was steeped in the thinking of Karl Barth, and that is not bad theology to hear in our day and age. The utter gratuity of the word spoken to history, the absolute and total dependence that all of us have on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that I heard over and over and over again as an adolescent growing up in northeast Pennsylvania. So everything I'm going to say tonight, even those times I'm going to be critical of Luther and the Lutheran tradition, it has to be put in the context of the fact that I find Lutherans to be our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they have the grace of the sacrament of baptism. So much so that in a Lutheran church, or at least in the church I grew up in, the Lutheran church of the Missouri Senate, we place the votive candle in our churches over the baptismal font, for it's truly the saving waters of baptism that makes us Christians. That being said, I wondered why they asked me to do this topic, because my specialty in theology is moral theology, and the last thing you want to talk about in these questions is with a moralist, you know, because you've got to get a systematician in here who likes to talk and parse out all the different types of graces there are, prevenient grace, you know, grace of justification, the grace of sanctification, the grace of glory, all that stuff, you know, and I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm going to do what I am trying to do, which is talk about this in terms of freedom and what it truly means to be free. But before that, let's situate it, before I keep yapping at you, as we should anytime we do theology in uh, scripture and tradition. I hope you saw the quotation from Martin Luther that uh, they put on the advertisement, uh, or advertisement if you want to pronounce it like an American, uh, that uh, was out there for this talk. Here is the words of uh, Dr. Luther himself. I frankly confess that for myself, even if it could be, I would not want free will to be given me. 
nor anything to be left in my own hands to enable me to endeavor after salvation. Not merely because in face of so many dangers and adversities and assaults of devils, I could not stand my ground, but because even were there no dangers, I should still be forced to labor with no guarantee of success. But now the God has taken my salvation out of the control of my own will and put it under the control of his and promised to save me, not according to my working or running, but according to his own grace and mercy. I have the comfortable certainty that he is faithful and will not lie to me and that he is also great and powerful so that no devils or opposition can break him or pluck me from him. End quote. That is a very a good quote, uh, partly because they spelled labor like the English spell it. It um, made me feeling at home. But also, it's a wonderful quote that really does sum up a lot of what Luther thinks about this issue. So kudos to those who put the flyer together. But also, let's situate that quotation now. Luther, who was so interested in sola scriptura, the right thing to do, and to be fair to Dr. Luther's attempt to do theology, let's turn to the Sacra Pagina, the sacred page of Holy Script. And I'm going to bounce around a little bit in the uh, scriptures, if you don't mind. I saw that it said to bring your scriptures, so I hope some of you at least paid attention to that. This is the end of the school year for the university, and so the college students are now free of classes. Today was my last day of teaching for the semester. So the students are getting their finals together. They have a tendency in the last class not to bring their books, so I hope you didn't imitate them. But let's start in the book of Sirach, chapter 17. Uh, Sirach 15, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to start at verse 11. You with me? Say not, it was God's doing that I fell away, for what he hates he does not do. Say not, it was he who set me astray, for he has no need of wicked men. Abominable wickedness the Lord hates. He does not let it befall those who fear him. When God in the beginning created man, he made him subject to his own free choices. If you choose, you can keep the commandments. It is loyalty to do his will. There are set before you fire and water to which you choose. Stretch forth your hand. Before man are life and death. Whichever he chooses shall be given him. Okay, I could go on, but you sort of get the point, huh? So, okay, do we have free will? Sirach uh, chapter 15, verse 11 to uh, 17. We do, let's go home. (laughs) Why was that not convincing to Dr. Luther? He doesn't accept Sirach as scripture, right? He does not accept this book as part of the canon of Scripture, right? So this is one of our huge problems in talking about the problem of free will because a very clear passage about our freedom and our will, the way we are created the image and likeness of God and have free will, has already been tossed overboard because of a prior decision that Luther had made about the canonicity of Scripture, right? This is one of the things that as a convert... I see quite clearly that an unbiblical idea became so dominant in the mind of the reformers, the so-called reformers, that they did great harm to the faith. Because where in Scripture 
does it say that the sole rule of faith is Scripture? Nowhere. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that the sole rule of faith is Scripture. And a matter of fact, logically, because there is a dispute about what books make up the book, because that's really what this is, a collection of God's love letters to us, if you will, but it's a book of books. There is no place in the book that tells us what books make up the book. We at least have to have enough of a traditio, a tradition. We have to have enough of it to tell us what books go in the book. So to even begin doing theology with the tenet of sola scriptura, not only is it self-contradictory, but we also have the problem, what books make up the book? And when they're disputed, as they were and are, you need some authority and a tradition to tell us that. So you see, very quickly, we get into the problem that the Reformation put before us. But not only that, the book itself says that the book is not the rule of faith. Let's look at that. This is not directly on the topic, but it's an important methodological question for us to get out there. I'd like you to go to the New Testament, to the pastoral epistles, to Timothy, and look at 1 Timothy 3.15. Okay? I was saying at the beginning, I switched Bibles uh, coming down here. I didn't bring the right ones. I have to look up all my verses because I don't have them all marked like I do in the Bible sitting on my desk. All right? I'll start at verse 14. This is 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul's writing to his young protege and disciple, Timothy. Although I hope to visit you soon, I am writing you about these matters, so that if I should be delayed, you will know what kind of conduct befits a member of God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and bulk work of truth. So the scriptures themselves tell us what the pillar and bulk work of truth is. What is it? The church. So even if we could get over the obstacle of sola scriptura, even if we could get over the problem of what books make up the book, the book itself tells us that when we want to know the truth, we look to the church. Right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the church tells me so. <laughs> That's what we should teach our kids to sing. Right? It is the church, which is empowered by God, the community of people in friendship with God, that carries out the mission of Jesus through space and time, including the teaching authority. The kingly office, the teaching office, and the pastoral office the sanctifying office, are in the church. Right? And we look to the church to answer these questions. As a moralist, of course, I'm not a systematic theologian. This is a question of ecclesiology. But I am a convert to the faith, and with you I'm a believer. And the reason I'm Catholic is I believe this. And we Catholics show our belief in this every Mass. Right after we pray the Our Father... What do we say? Look not on our sins, but on the faith of the church. So if I had time to go in the whole sola fide thing, 
I would say it's not my puny individual faith I rely on. It's the faith of the church. The communion of saints. The church militant. The church in purgatory. The church suffering. The church triumphant. The church in heaven. We rely on the faith of the church. Now this hit me like a two-by-four when I was at Oxford. I was struggling to come become Christian again. I had uh, turned my back on the faith as a young midshipman at the Naval Academy. It was right after Vietnam. It was the whole malaise thing. It was, you know, lots of reasons. We won't go into that. You can read my conversion story if you want. But uh, when I got to Oxford, I began to really, by the grace of God and, and the um, witness of good friends, began to take the faith seriously. And I started to study these things. What hit me... And I even got it first from a dissenter. It shows you you can get good things even from a bad source. The fact that Catholicism understands itself as a both-and religion. I was brought up with the Lutheran Catechism. I'm going to make reference a little bit later to one of the books we studied, the Book of Concord, which is an early attempt at Lutheranism to try to solve the divisions in Lutheranism, which happened right away. But... I was taught as a 14-year-old going through confirmation classes in Lutheranism that the three big tenets that we should be aware of for Lutherans were sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fides. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone. Solo. I don't know why they taught it to us in Latin, but they did. I know why, because that's how it was discussed in the Reformation documents. Remember, Luther did write often in Latin. Right? His stuff was translated into the vernacular German, but uh, he sometimes did the translation, but he wrote first usually in Latin. He did when he answered Erasmus in this book we're talking about, Bondage of the Will. But in fact, as I've already pointed out, it's not scripture alone. It's scripture and tradition. You need, have to have at least enough tradition to tell you what books go in the book, so it's scripture and tradition. It's not grace alone. It's grace and nature. Right? Grace doesn't annul nature. It doesn't just cover it over, a Lutheran metaphor. Grace, from a Catholic perspective, penetrates and possesses and transforms and elevates our nature. So it's grace and nature. Grace builds upon nature, perfecting it, transforming it, and elevating it. You could do this with all the ones that you have with the great solos. In Catholic theology, it's a both and rather than either or. Now, in my own theological specialty, the Church of Social Teaching, this is so clear when you take a term like solidarity, one of the themes of Catholic social teaching, solidarity, that virtue that we're all in this together, right? Solidarity, left on its own, though, leads to often kind of bureaucratic, heavy-handed, you know, Washington traffic, basically, right? <laughs> right? When you think of, you know, the state run amok, you, you, it's easy to do here because you just have to drive for a little bit. I think the government hires people to go cause traffic. Um, <laughs> solidarity is true, but it's not the whole truth about the social question. It must be balanced by that principle we don't talk about as much, subsidiarity. That principle that what can be done at the lower levels of social organization should be done at those lower levels. The state ought not to do what the family can do for itself, right? And the federal government ought not to do what the state government can do for itself. And the state government ought not to do what the county government can do for itself. And the county government ought not to do what the town can do for itself. And the town ought not to do what the village or the hamlet or the block can do for itself. 
and no one should try to replace the family. In Catholic thinking, we don't go to the individual, we go to the family as the building block of society. That community of persons that is the domestic church, the building block of society. So that's why, you know, the way those two principles have to be kept in balance. It's a both and rather than either or. And it doesn't surprise me as an American that we have two political parties that basically split on those two virtues. The Democrats tend to emphasize solidarity, that we're all in this together and worried about people falling through the safety net, and they're right to do so. But that left to itself can become problematic. Republicans have a tendency to want to emphasize, or they used to at least, want to emphasize uh, state rights and returning things to the community and, and parental rights and choices when it comes to education and things like that. And they're right to do so. And when you have that healthy balance, which we don't currently have, we just have people behind walls throwing holy hand grenades at each other, or not so holy hand grenades at each other, you should get a healthy balance in society. Well, we're not here to talk about that stuff today. But the point is that the Catholic theological understanding of these things is this both and. So tonight, when we talk about the freedom of the will, we're going to see how part of the problem for Luther is he can't come up with a recognition that something could be both our choice under God's grace. But in fact, it can be. And is. Right? Something can be both done by cause of the grace of God and we can freely choose it. And this is my last bit of introductory theology. We do not know what God is. is. We know what he's like and what he's not. But anything we posit about God is more untrue than true. There is in the Catholic tradition a wonderful apophatic tradition. Right? That tradition where we recognize how much we don't know. The more I learn theology, the more I realize what I don't know. Which is infinitely more than what I do know. But in our understanding of God, we do not know what it's like to cause something to happen in a free sort of way. For us, our human experience, we can only cause things to happen in a deterministic sort of way. If I take the pen out of my pocket and throw it down the aisle. I practiced so I didn't hit anybody, which I didn't want to do. But if I wanted to now, if we got that back, play the tape back for us, do it in slow motion, we could talk about the parabola that it followed. We could talk about the conservation of angular momentum. We could talk about the, 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 the force of gravity pushing it down. Or as my students like to say, it really isn't gravity, the earth is just sucking it down. You know, you just have this wrong idea, Father. Um, these things, these things are all determined by the laws of physics. We understand causing things in a deterministic sort of way. We experience it all the time. Right? What we don't have an experience of, but yet God does it, is God can cause things to happen that are still freely chosen. Because we do not know what it means to say God chooses. We only have the experience of what it means to choose as a human. Now that's, once we get that in our minds, then the mind-numbing problems, like of double predestination and all that, dissolve away. Because we have to humbly say is, literally, God only knows. But God knows. And we know that he knows. We're a knowledgeable family. All right? Does it make sense? Okay. 
Now, do we have any human experience that might hint to us what it might be like to cause things to happen in a free sort of way? Yes, we do, but it's so much a metaphor that it, it, it more than limps. It's kind of quadriplegic or something. And that is the causality of parents. And there's a reason that Scripture uses parental and spousal imagery so often. Because when parents come together and freely open to life and the marital embrace, they co-create with God a new life, and that life comes into existence. As that life grows, the parents can honestly say, or the cops can say about the parents, you caused this. <laughs> right? There's a way that we cause, but there's true freedom in the child who we did cause, but yet the child is freely choosing as the child gets to be a teenager and begins to choose as all teenagers do unwisely. We could even say, we knew you were predestined to get in trouble, right? Okay? We knew you were going to be rebellious in a problem, you know? We knew you were going to have trouble driving because the actuary tables of the insurance agency told us when they charged us $1,000 for every six months of you being a third driver on this car or whatever it is now, right? We can say that we know what's going to happen when someone becomes a teenager. But does that mean we cause the rebellion or the poor driving? No. Matter of fact, we do everything we can to try to prevent it. So we have a little bit of an experience what it's like to cause something in a free sort of way. But God's there in every good action we do. His grace is active. The only thing we can really do on our own without God is sin. And in that, Luther is absolutely correct. Make sense? All right, as John Harden used to always say, all this by way of introduction. You know, he was usually a couple hours into a talk at that stage. All right, I'm only a half hour. Let's go back to the scriptures then and see that we have numerous examples, even in places that are not part of the apocryphal, that talk about the freedom of our will. All right? For example, uh, what Sirach is really making reference to, I'm sure many of you picked it up, especially in the pro-life movement, is Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy 30, starting verse 19. I call heaven and earth today to witness against you. I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Choose life then, that you and your descendants may live by loving the Lord your God, heeding his voice and holding fast to him. For that will mean life for you, a long life for you to live on the land which the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That wonderful passage that we use so much in the pro-life movement, choose life, right? And it would be kind of odd of the Lord to tell us to choose something when we really couldn't choose. When Erasmus was writing, trying to refute Luther's position on free will that led to his bondage of the will, they were back and forth on this. Erasmus used this verse, uh, I think, to good effect. Uh, Luther, of course, didn't agree, but he uh, had a tendency to take all the commandments. And when you think about it, how many times do the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, command us to do something? Love your neighbor. Turn the other cheek. And all those commands seem to only make sense if we really have the choice to either do it or not. Okay? Obviously, the end of the Sermon on the Mount about how we build our house, if we choose to build it on solid rock or on sandy ground, that could be used. Right? So let's uh, get out, you know, obviously I could pile up the verses that seem to point to the fact that, oh, come on, this is, this is a no-brainer. And if you pick up your catechism, to show my age, I've got one of the old ones. I went through and made pen and ink changes, which I uh, dated and signed because I'm ex-military. So um, 
uh, when they made the uh, edits of the catechism. But if you go, you know, it's obvious in, in the catechism that um, the free will is talk. Uh, paragraph 323, for example. Divine providence works also through the actions of creatures. To human beings, God grants the ability to cooperate freely with his plans. He gives us the ability to cooperate freely with his plans. Paragraph 323. And if you go uh, in the moral section, starting at Article 3, it's entitled Man's Freedom. And the whole thing, starting at paragraph 1730, and it goes on for a while, is about our free will. So the catechism is pretty clear on this, as are these scriptures we've looked at, and I could pile up more. So why is there any question about this? Well, there are scriptural passages, quite frankly, especially in the places that Luther liked to focus the most, that make it a much murkier question. And here's where we have to do some theology. And the role of theology usually is seldom to affirm, never to deny, always to distinguish. Okay? So let's look at some of those more murky passages. Okay? That's a scary thing. I just got the 30 thing that tells me I'm exactly on time because that's exactly <laughs> what I expected. That happened once before, but I blew it in the second half of the lecture, so I'll try not to do that. Let's go to uh, Ephesians. The famous Ephesians chapter 2, uh, if, uh, famous if you're an ex-Protestant like myself, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 and 9. And I'm going to sneak one in there by including 10. But when I was a kid growing up, we never quoted 10 for some reason. You'll see why in a moment. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I repeat, it is owing to his favor, sometimes translated as grace, that salvation is yours through faith. Right? I repeat, it is owing to his grace that salvation is yours through faith. This is not your own doing. It is God's gift. Neither is it a reward for anything you have accomplished. So let no one pride himself on it. For grace you are saved by faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that's how I memorized it as a kid, reading the King James Version that I grew up on. Right? One day in high school, that was arguing about having foreign language. This is back when we still read the King James Bible in public schools. The Supreme Court had said not to do that, but in Mohopany, Pennsylvania, and Tonkanic, Pennsylvania, we hadn't heard that yet. So we were still reading the King James Bible in our schools. It was my second reader after the Dick and Jane's things was the King James Bible. <laughs> in second grade, I remember it quite well. Mrs. Jones would correct our pronunciation constantly. I mean, when we had to try to have foreign languages in school, a woman got up and said, I don't know why we're teaching the kids foreign languages. It's English was good enough for Jesus Christ. It's good enough for my kids. <laughs> And my Lutheran pastor, who was president of the public school board, he gave the perfect response to that. Well, you can't reason with logic like that. You know? <laughs> you know? Or you can't argue with your logic like that. She was satisfied and everyone else got it. So, um, We uh, learned it in, in the way that salvation is a gift. Right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. We are saved through grace. right? By grace, through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we asked where we always ended. But let's just, by, as an aside, look at verse 10. We are truly his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to lead the life of good deeds, which God prepared for us in advance. 
right? This is not a talk about works. You notice I avoided getting into works. But, and you have to work hard to not get into works, I'll tell you that. The fact is that right in the verse that often is used to talk about the absolute utter gratuity of grace is still that idea that we were made for cooperation, for a life of good deeds, what we would call a vocation in Christ, right? But this is one of the verses that uh, the Lutheran tradition uses a lot, as most Protestant traditions does, to talk about the utter gratuity of grace, and they're right, and the necessity of faith. And let's go over from there to another area which is frequently cited, and well, it's basically Luther's entire reading of Romans, right? And actually, in some Protestant Bibles, not the King James, but in some Protestant Bibles, I got a few back home, the book of Romans is not called Paul's letter to the Church of Rome, or the book of Romans is called the Gospel according to St. Paul. You know, that's how serious some Protestants take the read of Romans. And this is the creating of a canon within a canon that leads Luther to dismiss some of the canon as not particularly as good, like the book of James, famously, he called it a epistle of straw because it has that stuff about good works in it, you know. But if we go to chapter 7 of Romans, we probably get one of the best examples of Luther's own psychology and his own spirituality. And when he read this passage where he sees, yes, this is exactly it. This is the human condition. Let's start at uh, verse 13 in Romans 7. Did this good thing then become death for me? He's talking about the law. Not that either. Rather, sin, in order to be seen clearly as sin, used what was good to bring about my death. So you see, that's how one of the ways Luther ascribes away all the commands, all those imperatives. He says, you see, all they do is show us what terrible sinners we are. All those commands. We can't do those things. You can't love your neighbor. You can't turn the other cheek. You can't love your enemy. All they do is point out what a wretch we are. Rather, sin, in order to become clearly uh, seen as sin, used what was good to bring about my death. It did so that by misusing the commandments, sin might go to the limit of sinfulness. We know that the law is spiritual, whereas I am weak flesh, sold into the slavery of sin, bondage of the will. I cannot even understand my own actions. I do not do what I want to do, but what I hate. When I act against my own will, by that very fact, I agree that the law is good. This indicates that it is not I who do it, but sin which resides in me. I know that no good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. The desire to do right is there, but not the power. What happens is that I do not the good I will to do, but the evil I do not intend. But if I do what is against my will, it is not I who do it, but sin which dwells in me. This means that even though I want to do what is right, a law that leads to wrongdoing is always ready at hand. My inner self agrees with the law of God, but I see in my body's members another law at war with the law of my mind. This makes me the prisoner of the law of sin in my members. What a wretched man I am. Who can free me from this body under the power of death? It's passages like this, and also Jesus' discussion about you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, and the discussion when the Jews say, wait a minute, we're free people, and he says, no, if you were really free, you'd understand this stuff. These are the passages that lead Luther to say, see, 
We're under a bondage that we cannot break. Now, I left off right at that woe is me line. This is what you call in the Greek a diatribe. Right? This is what this is. Okay? In verse 24 it says, What a wretched man I am. Who can free me from this body under the power of death? If that's where it ended, we could say maybe Luther has a point about the bondage of the will. Next verse though. All praise to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that with my mind I serve the law of God, but with my flesh the law of sin. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit, the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, have freed you from the law of sin and death. The answer to the question, who will save me, is Christ Jesus. And here's where Lutherans and Catholics totally agree. The solution to the existential and anthropological crisis that Luther was trying to address with this, what I sometimes call the, the sinful hamlet, you know, this person, I want to do the good, but I can't do the good, I'm all, you know. Luther says, the answer is Jesus frees me. And once I have the grace of God, I can do what God commands me to do. And I can be what God commands me to be. But I can't do it until God frees me. And we Catholics would say, yeah, that's right. We need the grace of God. Any good work is under the grace of God. There is no free act that we make that isn't graced by God's gift. We can't in any way move towards salvation on our own. We cannot. We have not the power. We need the grace of God. Follow me? But once we have the grace of God, we can begin living that life that God calls us to by the grace of God. So for the Catholic Christians, we would agree, and we just put out a document with the Lutherans, that we basically agree on justification. It's a gift of God. The way that Lutherans like to talk about it is the act of total trust, faith. Right? But even that act is God's work in us. And we have a tendency to talk about that moment when you are justified before God. Justification. Right? Made just. And for most of us, that begins the moment we are baptized. Right? Ever had a street preacher ask you, you know, they usually don't do it when I'm in collar, but when I'm on mufti on the street, you know, I sometimes hear the street preachers when I visit Chicago. I used to go up on my day off for the Art Institute. I'd walk down the street and the street preacher would go, Brother, are you saved? And I... I love it. They're preaching the gospel out there. Now, of course, that's an illegal act in the military and he can be uh, tried in the UCMJ. I, I, I do mass at uh, a couple of military bases, so I'll be breaking the law here soon. Um, now that our government has made it illegal to be Christian. Because you can't be a Christian and not share your faith. So to say you can't share your faith in the military is to outlaw Christianity. You know, that's how far our government is going. And we're letting them. We're letting them. You know? Just an aside. When the, the person says, brother, are you saved? My answer is, up. yes, brother, I'm saved. Of course, the next question is always what? You've had it. When were you saved, right? My answer is always the same. Remember it well. It was on a hill outside of Jerusalem in 33 AD. 
When we are put right by the grace of God into right relationship with God, we are incorporated into the mystical body of Christ and we begin a personal, passionate, intimate relationship with the God who is. In other words, we enter into a friendship, a communion, a bond. We enter into the family union. And relationships can never be forced. You cannot force someone to love you. You can't force someone to be in a family relationship with you. You can try, but it doesn't work. The thing that's missing, to believe it or not, as an ex-Lutheran, the thing that's missing in Luther's theology is personalism. Is understanding that what God is offering is not about law. It's not about righteousness. It's about a family relationship. Because when we are baptized, we're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, we get a new family name. All of us have the same family last name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We sign our name together because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? We're the little brothers and sisters of Jesus. My big brother can beat up any other big brother. Right? God is truly our Father. Yeah? We have the grace and the courage to be able to say, Abba, Father. We have the Spirit living within us. We're part of the family. We're brought right in to the inner life of the triune God. Oh, happy fault, oh, necessary sin. Because what Adam and Eve had, friendship with God, what was lost by their sin, is more than restored in Christ Jesus because now we're brought right into the family. And if we think about it in that way, then we understand what is being offered us is a cooperative family relationship. As Augustine himself said, and Luther liked to quote Augustine a lot, Augustine can be confusing on these issues because he never systematically figured it all out. He was an early church father after all. But as Augustine said, and I'm paraphrasing, God created us without us. He will not save us without us. We have to say yes to his offer of relationship. That's what's going on. Now, if you go to the book of Concord, And the Lutherans had trouble figuring this out, and they were starting to argue with each other. That's why we have a book of Concord written really in the third generation of Lutheranism, uh, between the second and the third generation. They have a section in the formula of Concord on uh, free will. It's Article 2 in the Solid Decoration Formula of Concord. It's a lengthy document, and I, I grew up with this, so I'm sort of used to it. The way they write these documents is, well, let us tell you the truth here. Now, there are these Catholics that believe this. They're wrong. And now there's, there's these Anabaptists. Boy, are they wrong. Because right? right away, Protestantism began to split and split, and they were condemning that really quick. And we're right here in the middle. It's great teaching mode. Of course, I do it myself. So it's not a bad way of teaching. But in this, they say, this is about their comments on free will. In order to settle this controversy in a Christian way, according to the word of God, and by God's grace to bring it to an end, We submit the following as our teaching, belief, and confession. We believe that in spiritual and divine things, the intellect, heart, and will of unregenerated man cannot by any native or natural powers in any way understand, believe, accept, imagine, will, begin, accomplish, do, affect, or cooperate but that man is entirely and completely dead and corrupted as far as anything good is concerned. Accordingly, we believe that after the fall and prior to his conversion, 
Not a spark of spiritual powers have remained or exist in a man by which he could make himself ready for the grace of God or to accept the pro-offered grace, nor that he has any capacity for grace by and for himself or can apply himself to it or prepare himself for it or help, do, affect, or cooperate towards his conversion by his own powers, either altogether or halfway or in the tiniest of small degree of himself as coming from himself, but is a slave of sin the captive of the devil who drives him. Hence, according to its perverse disposition and nature, the natural free will is mighty and active only in the direction of that which is displeasing and contrary to God. So you see this where they're trying to emphasize the utter gratuity of God's offer. We don't deserve it. We can't move at all in that direction. And they're not completely wrong there. The one word I would quibble with in that diatribe is the word cooperate. Because that's where they go too far. God graces us with the power to cooperate with his offer of relationship. Because he wants it to be a real relationship. A relationship based on that core ad core locutor moment, that heart to heart moment. Right? Heart speaking to heart moment. When we say yes to his offer of intimate relationship. Or to put it more bluntly, sometimes you have to do this when you're teaching college kids, God will never rape anybody. He never forces himself on anybody. And therefore, we must have the ability to say yes or no. But if we say yes, it's his grace that does it. If we say no, we're not cooperating with the grace he gives us. Because the Second Vatican Council was very emphatic about this, that the grace of salvation, the grace won for us by Christ on the cross, is offered to every person in a way known to God alone. Oh, save us. Gamus Bez, paragraph 22. The grace won for us by Christ and the cross is offered to every human person in a way known to God alone. There was a young German theologian got himself in trouble with the CDF a couple years later for some of the things he wrote. But a young German theologian who wrote the most definitive commentary on Gamus Bez soon after the council, when he got to paragraph 22 of Gamus Bez, he said... The council fathers said that the grace of God is offered to every person in a way known to God alone, so probably we should shut up about it. <laughs> now that young German theologian got himself in trouble with the CDF, uh, we now know as Benedict XVI. <laughs> right? I think that that text reminds us that it's a free offering from a God who loves us and calls us into relationship with him. Luther gets so much right, and he's reacting to so much wrong. In his day and age, there was some really bad theology, and there's always bad theology. In his day and age, there's some really bad theology. And I I don't have time to go into it tonight. It gets kind of complicated. But uh, there's some really good work that the ecumenical movement is doing, trying to sort this all out. This was an early work done not long after the council by Harry McSorley that tries to go through and figure out what was Luther taught by whom, when, and what books was he reading in his theological training when it came to figuring these things out. And he pretty accurately shows that Luther never had a good dose of Thomas on this issue. That his Thomism came through the nominalist tradition that was heavily influenced by the Franciscan tradition of people like Occam, for example, And there was a a guy in northern Germany that was a very popular theologian, uh, I think I'm pronouncing the name right, Bea, whose own writings on this issue were semi-Pelagian. 
And you say, well, how could Catholic theologians be semi-Pelagian when the Council of Orange had said semi-Pelagianism is wrong? That's the idea that you can work halfway to salvation and God comes and gets you the rest of the way. It had been condemned by the church. He's shown pretty definitively that there was no copy of that council decree in that part of the world. They didn't know it existed. That ecumenical council just wasn't on the records in the area where the, the theologians that Luther is reacting to were writing. And so they were teaching what was objectively heresy. And Luther was reacting to the heretical texts and teachers that were teaching him. And he was right to say, there's something wrong here. This is Pelagian. To think you can earn salvation or even make a movement halfway towards it or a little bit towards it. And so some of his most emphatic diatribes is in reaction to bad theology. And this is always what happens. Bad theology leads to more bad theology. You get technically the process of reactionary, right? And when someone puts out something here that's wrong and then you react to it, you're already on the bad guy's ground and usually you go equally as far wrong in the other direction. And that never got worked out. Why did it never get worked out? Because Luther was an impatient man. And he didn't wait for the church's magisterium to work these things out. When John Courtney Morey came along in the 40s and began to posit that there was a way of interpreting Catholic tradition when it came to religious freedom that was different than what the church was in the, in the early part of the 20th century defining or teaching, that there may be a way that the church could embrace religious liberty without denying the uh, goodness of a Catholic state, uh, the church told him, we're not ready for this yet. You may be right, but we're not ready for this. And they silenced him. They asked him not to publish. He was a Jesuit. And that's back when Jesuits used to actually pay attention to their fourth vow of obedience <laughs> to the Pope. He was silent. 15 to 20 years later, he was vindicated in the Declaration of Religious Liberty, which he helped write because the time was opportune and the church's theological maturation had gotten around to understanding and embracing some of what he taught. Not everything he taught did they embrace. A confrere of his, a French confrere, Henri de Lubac, was putting forward some radical notions for the textbooks of the day of, of the relationship between nature and grace. He discovered and rediscovered some things in the fathers of the church that he was translating because what do you do if you're a Jesuit and there's a world war out there? Well, you go into the library and you translate things. <laughs> God brings good out of evil, right? So he's putting forth that and the church said, mm, we're not ready for that yet. And so he spent the 50s writing about Tillyard de Shadan, something that almost drove him crazy. He did that just to try to save Shadan from himself which was not, unfortunately, at the end possible, but because he was told not to write about the things he was writing about. Eve Kungar comes along and rediscovers some of those texts that talk about the universal call to holiness and the role of the lady in the church. And the church says, the interesting ideas, we're not ready for them. And so for 10 years, he wasn't able to teach in that area. When John Twenty-Third called the Second Vatican Council, the first two theologians he chose was Andre Lubach and Eve Kungar, a Jesuit and a Dominican. He was a good politician, John. <laughs> you see, those theologians that I could list many more from that era, right? giants, they almost all, every person I mentioned almost, except uh, Murray because he died too soon, were made cardinals, mostly by John Paul II. 
their humility and their patience to wait for the church to catch up, if you will. Wait for the churches and the grace of the Holy Spirit to lead to a maturation of these ideas so the church could really rule on them because we propose and the church disposes. It's the church that is the pillar and bulwark of truth. We theologians are just theologians. We put forward our ideas and we let, like I believe, personal opinion, that the use of the death penalty is an intrinsic evil. I think we're going to get there eventually and outlaw it completely in the church, like we now outlaw slavery and torture, which we once permitted. Right? And now we see them to be intrinsic evils. Personal opinion, I've written some chapters on this and some articles on this, but I can't say that's a teaching of the church. It's not. It's my theological opinion. I could be wrong. I propose it to the church. Let the church figure this out. And probably when I'm dead and dusty and gone and forgotten, maybe the church will get there. Maybe they'll say, Swetlinism, heresy. Don't listen to it. <laughs> I, I, that stage, I won't care. The point is that, yes, there was bad theology, and Luther reacted to it, and in a very vitriolic way, wrote himself right into a corner. And quite frankly, wrote himself right out of Catholic orthodoxy. Went to the shallow end of the baptismal pool. Instead of uh, the deep and rich end where we rely on the faith of the church. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. Bless on the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much, Thank Monsignor. You. Thank you, Monsignor, for a wonderful presentation. I'm just, he talks faster than me. I'm just glad he's on our side. We'll take a short break and have Q&A in just a moment. Thank you. Monsignor, I was uh, following in this version of the Bible that you said the mm -hmm. church is the pillar and bulwark of truth. Yeah. This version says it's a pillar and bulwark of truth, and I don't understand how we can talk to our Protestant brothers and sisters when we have such hmm. different translations. And this is a Protestant Well, this version. is why his brother is uh, teaching Koine Greek. <laughs> was that a good enough plug? Uh, yeah. For that. Um, the, um, well, let me uh, just uh, double check. I don't have the Greek with me, and I'll feign uh, that I know something about the Greek. But um, the Church of the Living God, the pillar. And you know, articles in Greek are, are different than they are in ours, but I think we're okay with that. Uh, I think, I, I, you know, you, now you got me tweaked my interest. I'm going to go home and check. But I think we're okay with that. Anyone else have, a, anyone have the Revised Standard Version with them? That's the one I left on my desk. If you want, by the way, my own personal opinion about English translations, the most beautiful is the King James English. But to get to that, of course, it sacrificed accuracy. The uh, Revised Standard, not the New Revised Standard, but the Revised Standard is the most accurate to the original Greek, in my experience. The reason I say not the New Revised is they've done that inclusive language thing, which distorts some of the text. If you ever get an argument with people about inclusive language, what it does to the Psalms, for example, is close to sacrilegious, in my opinion. The fathers of the church understood the Psalms all were referenced to Christ. So like the first Psalm 1, happy the man who follows not the counsel of the wicked. All right, and it goes on. Nor walks in the way of sinners, nor sits in the company of the insolent. All right? Well, the fathers of the church said, yeah, the blessed man who didn't do that, that's Christ. 
right? So now if you make an inclusive language, blessed are they, you've lost completely the Christological interpretation of the Psalms, right? I mean, it's not just a neutral question. I know you didn't come here to talk about inclusive language, so I'll shut up. We were talking about 1 Timothy. This is a beautiful Bible, by the way. I, you Make sure you get it back from here. It may go to Emmonsville. <laughs> There's something particularly wrong about stealing a Bible. But uh, <laughs> If I delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of truth. So the one that I trust the most says the too. So I, I think I'm on pretty good ground to say the pillar and bulwark of truth. If you want to see a beautiful set of writings about that verse, Marcus Grodi. The guy who runs the Coming Home Network, that was the verse that converted him. Yeah. And uh, he, he wrote a novel about it, actually. A lot of the converts do different ways of doing their conversion stories. He wrote a novel about it. I can't remember. How Firm a Faith or something like that. How Firm a Foundation. Thank you. I couldn't remember the title. So I think it's the pillar and bulk word of truth. Monsignor, if I yeah. could just put a, a moment. I just was able to call my brother, actually, on the phone. Oh. And I'll just support your, your argument you, was, you oh. were making earlier. Yeah. Is that There is no article at all in the Greek there. That's, that was my okay. guess, but and I didn't so, want to say it without the text in front of me. Right, and so yeah. it is a classic point where you need the church yeah. to be able to interpret the text yeah. for us. Without that, then you can put A, as the Jehovah's Witness do, a God in John chapter 1, or a pillar and broker of two, or you have the church to guide you along. Yeah, yeah. Monsignor, did Luther's problems with the doctrine of will negatively affect his opinions or ideas about the saints? I would think that would make him think less of them, maybe. Well, he relied less on the intercession of the saints because of this total gratuity on the grace of God directly. But, as my mom pointed out when she started praying the rosary about 15 years before she came to the Catholic Church, he had a great devotion to Our Lady, which is true. It depends. The problem with Luther is he's very hard to pin down on many things. You can find texts that support all kinds of things. I, I thought about doing it. I've got about 80 bullets here where I can make fun of him for things he said. But partly, he was all over the place and wasn't systematic, which isn't the worst thing in the world. You can accuse a lot of very saintly men and women of that in their writings. There's a young Luther, middle-aged Luther, and old Luther, and they're in different places on these questions. So, you know, you can find supporting texts and practices where he had devotion to the saints. And in the Lutheran tradition, we never lost devotion to the saints completely. When I was a young Lutheran and I would be bored by the homily, which very seldom, the sermon as they call it, I would turn to the hymnal in my pew and the hymnal would have the saints listed, much like we have the saints listed. And what's interesting, it was my first encounter of John the 23rd, who the Lutherans had canonized uh, well before we had made him blessed. In the 70s, he was in my hymnal, we had made him a saint. I didn't even know the Lutherans like, thought they had their authority to do that, but, you know. <laughs> you know. When Mother Tr- i got to tell this story. When Mother Teresa came to Peoria, last time she came, we, we had the sisters in our, in our community. First thing she said to the sisters when she met them, she said, Sisters, die now. They're canonizing everybody. <laughs> she died, they canonized her, you know. I have to ask you, yeah. I hear your Missouri Synod, I know that they are very conservative. Or They're whatever. In, Lutheran, in the Lutheran schema of things, yeah. they are considered more traditional. Like they did not co-sign the Catholic Lutheran uh, statement on justification because they thought it gave too much away to the Catholics. 
Now, but believe it or not, there's a more conservative group than the Missouri Senate Lutherans. There's the Wisconsin Senate Lutherans, who are even more conservative than the Missouri Senate Lutherans. You know, this gets into all kinds of the nuances of, of what seminary they go to and all of that. Not that we'd have anything like that in the Catholic Church, right? Um, <laughs> but the, uh, the Lutheran Church in the United States that's more well-known is the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the ELCA. And that is more on most things doctrinal and spiritual and moral, more what you would say, you know, Protestant liberal. So now, my question is, um, will they come back? They are the furthest from us in some ways. The Missouri Senate take very seriously the anthropological view of Luther himself that we are a mass of corruption, right? You probably have heard this before that some descriptions, Luther used a description of the human person. He was trying to find a metaphor. He said, the human person in grace is like a dung heap after a fresh snow. Grace is like the snow that covers the dung heap. Deep down, it's still a dung heap, but it's covered in the grace of Christ, right? You see, because his anthropology, grace did not penetrate, possess, elevate, and transform. It covers over. So he had the idea that we were both uh, saved and sinner. You know, we were both sanctified, but yet continuing to be sinners. That understanding is, leads ultimately to not understanding what we call sanctification. If there's a sort of a timeline of a person's life, it's all under grace, right? God's grace is, is always there, right? We call it different things based on our situation, but it's always God's loving mercy directed towards us. Before we are justified, we call that prevenient grace. That's the grace leading us to the baptismal font. At the moment... This pen doesn't work for Is the orange one good? Just, this is like a battle in Ireland. <laughs> All right. At that moment, we're put into right relationship with God by the grace of God. That moment of justification, when we're made right with God, we're put in right relationship. But that's not the end of the story. Many Protestants believe in this once saved, always saved idea that, you know, once you say the magic words or... Commit yourself to the, your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's it. Right? That belief, of course, kills off the spiritual life. Anabaptists, the low church Protestants believe that. And I say, you know, real quick, name me three Baptist mystics. All the history of Baptists. Why do we not know some of the great mystics of the Baptist tradition? Why do we not have deep contemplative prayer, heroic sanctity coming out of that community? Because if all it is is either on, off, and once it's on, who cares? Why would you do what it takes to become a mystic in this life if all that matters is you've turned the switch on? Now you're a child of God. It's death now to the spiritual life, right? But we know that justification is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. So we're like Paul Harvey, the rest of the story, right? After justification is the process of sanctification, whereby the grace of God we are made into the saints we're called to be, right? All of us are called to be saints. We're called to be holy. There's not a saint steward. As a convert, I got a chance to be the first saint steward, which would be a pretty cool thing, right? right? So we all should have the goal to become the saints we're called to be. The French theologian who says the only tragedy in life is not to become the saint you're called to be. And what does it mean to be a saint? I think Matthew Kelly's got a great line. He bothers it really from Francis de Sales, the de Sales tradition. To be holy is to become the best version of yourself. 
That's what it means to become a saint, to become the best version of yourself. Each person is uniquely different. God's how God created us. So to become perfectly you is to be a saint, the you that God created you to be, the you he had in mind when he created you. So we call that sanctification. Now, for some of us, that happens in this life. So when we die, we have glorification. When we enter into the glory of heaven, right? Glorification, right? And I personal, personal theological opinion, this is not necessarily the teaching of the church, I think we could continue to grow in heaven, right? This idea that heaven we become statically the same seems to me to be odd given that it's a love relationship and love relationships always continue to grow and become more, right? First of all, I'll come into right relationship with God in a full way in heaven and then I get to meet all of the saints and angels in heaven and I'm going to learn and, and experience God through their eyes too. You know, I'm going to continue to grow, I think. And I have some good theologians on my side on this, especially the man that we know as Benedict XVI. So uh, I'll go with that. But uh, it's speculation, I'll, I'll grant you that. But glorification, okay? Now, for some of us, Glorification doesn't happen until after we die, right? I mean, well after I die, because I'm, I might need that period of time, if you will, and even time there has to be put in inverted commas. I might need that finishing school in the life to come called purgatory to become fully sanctified, to be able to enter into heaven. Because what makes heaven heavenly is the presence of God, of course. But what also makes it heavenly is that every person in heaven is the perfected lovers they're called to be. Right? No one gets into heaven without becoming a perfected lover. So if I've learned that in this life, if I've learned how to love like they love in heaven, then I don't need purgatory. But if I haven't yet learned to love like they love in heaven, but I'm still in friendship with God, then I need the finishing school, the graduate program, the postdoc, whatever you want to call it, purgatory. All right? I know this wasn't on purgatory, but that's... All right, next question. Um, this isn't necessarily about Luther, but free will. Could Mary have said no, being that she was full of grace? This is about, can we say no in heaven? No in heaven doesn't make sense, right? Because we're so overwhelmed with seeing it all, and we have all the truth, all the knowledge, all the grace. It's like I had a, a Dominican who used to give me grief for quoting Mother Teresa while she was still alive. You're always quoting her like she's canonized. She's not canonized yet. We don't know. She could run off with the Pope tomorrow. You know? I used to, to myself, I say, Father, you got trouble. But why didn't John Paul II and Mother Teresa run off with each other? You know, they, they were obviously, you know, the way they looked at each other, they obviously had this great love, right? Because that didn't make any sense to them. They had God. They had, you know, it, could it theoretically possibly have been? Well, yeah but it would make absolutely no sense to them. Like, for me, I don't know if you ever did this, when I was a kid, I loved playing tic-tac-toe. There came a time when, why would I bother with tic-tac-toe? It always ends in a tie. You know? I mean, so I don't play tic-tac-toe anymore. I've transcended it. Yeah, could I choose playing tic-tac-toe? Yeah, but I don't do that anymore. So just like that, we're going to grow up where, yeah, theoretically we're still free, but we see goodness as it is. There's only one choice when full goodness is presented to you. Make sense? Father, I wonder if you have any thoughts about how the different understanding about sanctified nature and corrupt nature affects our modern problems with, with understanding nature. Well, part of it is just getting, do we believe we can become saints, right? If you take Lutheran theology 
to its logical conclusion, and we do remain just a mass of corruption, then there really becomes the battle against sin, personal and collective, is somewhat unimportant. Right? But if you believe that God's grace can and will penetrate, possess, transform, and elevate you, then the battle of the spiritual life, as the catechism calls it, becomes fully operative because you can become the saint you're called to be. Whatever it is in us that keeps us from that can be healed, can be overcome. That's an, an amazing belief. I, I always say there's a, it's just incredible some of the beliefs that we Christians have, that there is a God, that he created everything out of nothing, that he cares about us. You know, One of the biggest boasts that Christians, and we share this with Jews and Muslims, is that we believe God cares about us. Right? If, I, I do a lot of Greek philosophy. I teach a lot of Greek philosophy. And the Greeks thought God was apatheia. We get apathetic from apatheia. He was unmoved and unmovable. He couldn't care less about us because if he cared about us, that'd be a weakness in him. If what we did mattered to God, that was a vulnerability and a weakness. But what does Christ reveal to us? That the one God who is, is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and infinitely vulnerable, full of compassion. What does compassion mean? Calm with passion to suffer. He suffers with us and for us. This is a transformation of the understanding. So the God of the philosophers is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And maybe Tertullian has a point. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Now, faith builds on reason. So there's something that Athens has to do with Jerusalem. But the notion they have of God, I just today was teaching Aristotle, so I'm thinking about these things. The notion of the Christian God is so radically different than the Greco-Roman philosophers because it had a God that is pro-nobis, for us. And that seemed impossible to them. So if we believe that, then not only is a real dynamic relationship possible, but we know we can be transformed and truly become Christians, other Christs. And that's what we want to become. Not just a dung heap covered in snow. An on-fire person, on fire with the love of God, other Christs in the world. We just prayed this for Catherine and Sienna's feast day on Monday. She was set on fire by divine life, right? Benedict said this recently to young people. He said, the world offers us comfort. The world offers us comfort, but we weren't made for comfort. We were made for greatness. If you take Lutheran theology to its logical conclusion, we're not made for greatness. We're dung heaps. We believe, and I think it is what the scriptures reveal, that we were made for greatness. Uh, this is a nuts and bolts question. Sure. Other than removing the books from the, the Bible, mm -hmm. I was also informed that Luther also made another additional 20,000 changes. Is there any basis to that? Well, they made a lot of changes. I mean, one of the things that led me to take seriously the Catholic claims to being the church founded by Jesus Christ was the fact we anoint the sick. You know, if you take the scriptures seriously, you read James chapter 5, anointing the sick is pretty straightforward there, right? You know? What do you do if you've got sick people? You call the presbyters. You lay hands on them. You anoint them with oil. You know, well, why don't we do that? I asked my pastor, my Lutheran pastor, why don't we do that? You know, well, that smacks of Catholic sacramentality. Yeah, but this is scripture, you know? And I'm, well, it doesn't make sense. You know, yeah, so he made changes that I find very unscriptural. Thank you very much, Monsignor. Thank you, Monsignor, for coming to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We hope you will uh, come back soon and be with us.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.